Hello, 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 and welcome everybody once again to Out of the Tower, where we find philosophy and tech neck and neck. And today we are going to be discussing a growing trend within the greater art world. We're going to be discussing the impact of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and their impact not only on society, but the greater art world as well. And who better to bring on for such a topic? Not one, not two, but three venerable guests with us today. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have our first ever three-way or four-way, if you're counting yours truly, discussion today. I would like to go around and introduce everyone. Uh, First and foremost, we have Dr. Sally Metzler. Uh, Dr. Metzler is a renowned art historian, professor, and curator. Uh, She has more than 25 years of museum expertise, uh, most recently at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. And at the Met, she curated an international loan exhibition and wrote the exhibition catalog published by, published by Yale Press. Uh, she's also held engagements at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., um, as well as the Martin D'Arcy Museum of Medieval, Renaissance, and Baroque Art at Loyola University in Chicago. She is currently uh, the director of Art Collection and the Union League Club of Chicago. Uh, she holds a PhD from Princeton University and currently teaches at Northwestern University. So, Doctor, thank you so much with, for being with us here today. Thank you, Peter. I'm thrilled to be here. And second up to the plate, we have the one and only Steve Zick. He is the Senior Vice President and Director at Christie's in Chicago. Uh, he has spent close to 20 years at the famed auction house where he works with private collectors, institutions, and estates on appraisals, auctions, and private sales of art, jewelry, wine, and other collectibles. Uh, he's also held similar positions at Bonham and Butterfields. Uh, he's a lawyer by training, uh, having received his degree from DePaul in Chicago, and in fact served as Assistant Attorney Attorney General of Illinois for a decade. Steve, thanks so much for being here today. Good morning, Peter. Thank you. And last but most assuredly not least, we have Megan Doyle. She is a cataloger at Christie's in New York in the post-war and contemporary art department. She has specific expertise in the growing field of NFT-based artwork and digital media. She uh, played a pivotal role in the sourcing, marketing, and sale of the first ever digital-only artwork at a major auction house. The digital artwork by artist People... Uh, was known as Every Day's The First 5,000 Days and actually sold for more than $69 million. Uh, she holds degrees in art history for, and Italian from Pepperdine University. Uh, prior to her work at Christie's, uh, she also served in positions at the British Museum and Israel's Tel Aviv Museum of Art, among others. Megan, thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Peter. Looking forward to it. And just a big thank you to all of you collectively right now. So I just want to jump right into it because I'm not sure if our uh, listeners at home may necessarily be familiar. Um, A lot of discussion is about, you know, just what are these NFTs? They've arrived on the scene uh, so quickly. Um, You know, know, my general understanding is, you know, it's what's known as a non-fungible token. So what that essentially means is it is very uh, technically speaking, it's a digital uh, receipt that exists on the blockchain originally meant for um, cryptocurrencies that essentially allows uh, digital artworks to quote unquote have the original. So essentially, if you have a piece of digital artwork, um, it's not so much that you own the artwork itself or that you even hold the copyright to it, but you essentially own a receipt saying that um, you own what can be considered in very technical terms, uh, the original. Um so I would just like to jump right in. Um, you know, does that sound a pretty sound? You know, I, what do you think really should be the concrete definition? If you want to jump in here, um, Megan, I know that this is really, really your expertise. So just uh, feel free to uh, get going. I'm, I'm really just really just trying to peg this down because I've heard all sorts of different definitions all over the place. Certainly, as have I. And I got to say, over the past year and a half, a lot of my energy has been devoted to kind of pinning that definition down. And it seems to fluctuate regardless of who you're speaking with or what you're speaking about. But Peter, I think you hit the nail on the head when you indicated that the non-fungible token is like carving a chunk out of the blockchain and staking your claim on that chunk. And what's important about that is because the blockchain is a series of computers that all agree on the same information, which means that if one computer shuts down, if the power goes out somewhere else, you still have all these other computers agreeing on the same information. And so that bestows a certain immutability and longevity to the information contained therein. 
And so to have a chunk of that chain can be a valuable thing. And as you said, it started with cryptocurrency. All we cared about was those chunks and whoever held the most chunks of the blockchain held the most currency. But now we've starting to see it applied to a variety of creative disciplines. In the case of art, the chunk of the blockchain is what you stake your claim over, but it points to digital assets that can be video, images, uh, generative art. And we can certainly get into that, but that is all held, stored off the blockchain. It's in massive file servers somewhere else in the world. So your blockchain, your, your chunk of the blockchain, your token is essentially a signpost to whatever asset is associated with that token. And that is why, like you said, it's become very important for bestowing a certain amount of rarity and uncopyability to work that is otherwise proliferate across the internet. Yes, yeah, so the decentralization um, inherent in the blockchain technology is absolutely paramount to ensuring that this new form, this new concept of originality uh, can work. Um, that's really been my major takeaway, um, which which has, has just raised so many questions for me, at least um, just just in terms of the back, just having a background in philosophy. Um, we tend to think perhaps fatally so quite abstractly about any and everything. Um, but that actually does lead into a very particular sort of cor course of um, thought, if you will, a, a particular train of inquiry. Wow, I messed up those two Um Idioms. Wow, this this is a uh, <laughs> no. I need to work on that a bit more. Um, but that it's really does really lead to one. Of, oh well, no, I do appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, th this is th this next one is a little bit of a free for all because I really thought this was really the cornerstone of I think um where Christie's is uh, finding itself in this day and age. Um, and that is a uh, recently uh the renowned uh, digital artist Beeple, um, one of his uh, most uh, prized collections. Uh, it's the uh, every days, uh, the first 5,000 days uh, recently, as I understand it, that was sold at auction by Christie's for more than 69 million. And it was the first ever piece of digital art to be sold um, by a major auction house. And uh, given the um, truly illustrious reputation that Christie's um, has, uh, the name it's made for itself, um, and just feel free, everybody here to jump in. Um, I really just want to know, um, what sort of precedent do you think that is setting? Do you, do you quietly sense a, a true turning point in the very conception of value that could be slowly but surely rocking the art world to its core. Maybe that's a bit much, but um, I really would <laughs> Yeah, your know question about, certainly if, takes you know, in a lot, but nothing yeah. wrong but, with but getting I guess into it on a Saturday morning. Well, no, th you know, th that's me, and I do need to work on that. But, um, but what I'm really just trying to get is, um, you know, uh, especially both you, Megan, and Steve, um, do you really think um, that a cultural precedent uh, is being set by Christie's in um, making this record and having this auction for digital art? Megan, should I? I'll jump in and do maybe sort of a global backstory. You know, I think, Peter, when you think that Christie's was founded in 1766, so we are 10 years older than the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and we've been around a very long time. We were quick to do celebrity sales. You know, we sold Madame de Pompadour's jewels in the 18th century. We, you know, right up to the sale of Elizabeth Taylor's jewels in 2011. But we've always been sort of on the on the crest of the wave of, of emerging technologies. So by the 19th century, we were selling photographs. Imagine how revolutionary that was when you go from oil on canvas, sculpture, you know, made of marble to, to photography, which was such a, I think, a, a nice parallel between what's happening now in the first quarter of the 21st century. So Christie says, always embrace that. We moved on to video art, you know, mm -hmm. and there have been naysayers and people who poo-pooed these emerging technologies as art. And yet they are. And now they're, I think they're firmly established in the canon of, of what is considered fine art. So um, in a sense, Beeple's nothing new. Um, it's been a learning curve for all of us. And Megan has certainly set the tone inside the company along with her, her colleague, Noah Davis. But we have, you know, I, for example... Um, out in the regional office of Chicago fielded a call from a very famous celebrities 
handler who found me on LinkedIn and wanted to monetize his life by coming up with an NFT. And I to have this learning curve because I showed it to Megan and she's like, oh no, this is, you know, we have been working with established digital artists who've been in this space for a, a long time and people are trying to cash in, but send him away. And so I did, but um, I think that's a good point to hand over to Megan and say the guardrails were established. We've always embraced this technology and now we are taking it forward. Mm-hmm. Before and you hand it over to Megan, that. oh, I just wanted to add just really quickly, you all know this, but I think the audience should, that as far as is it changing really the whole landscape, my understanding is that last year, $50 billion approximately were invested into art. And amazingly, $40 billion was invested into NFTs. So just I'll, I'll leave with that. Mm-hmm. An enormous amount of money is pouring into it. So what Steve and Megan are saying is they are at the forefront of really a revolution, I think, in the way art mm-hmm. is bought and sold. Megan, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's okay. And, and it's an interesting conundrum because you put us very generously at the front of a revolution, though I would posit that a lot of our work is reactive to mm-hmm. collecting and institutional trends. So as Steve was saying, we were selling photography in the 19th century. That's because photography was becoming a thing. It was becoming recognized as an art form. And we then want to bring it to collectors. We seek to Mm -hmm. make those connections. And so in the same vein, there was a thriving ecosystem of digital art being traded all throughout 2020, 2021, Uh, And even before then, you know, more historic projects, if you can think of history in terms of five or six years. But nevertheless, our role in that was bringing legitimacy to the trade Mm -hmm. that was already happening and to the Mm -hmm. creative production that was already out there. And so we kind of play this role and, and need to be very humble about it, too, that our selections of what we offer for sale is validating and lends credibility to artists and to creative production that Mm -hmm. otherwise was frankly languishing amongst the cesspool of digital art that's out (laughs) there. And so, so, you know, we need to understand that what we kind of cherry pick out of that and who we choose to promote has a huge impact because we are then setting it on the global stage by backing it with, as Steve said, our illustrious 250 plus year history. So our choices here and our responsibility to collectors are are important and they're undertaken with great thought and you know team input and nothing is done lightly because as with anything on the frontier, every step you take is somewhere, is going somewhere. And mm-hmm. so you, you wanna make sure it's in the right direction. You're vetting. So it really seems. Yeah. Yeah. So it really seems that uh, Christie's uh, just had had a collective mindset that was really um, prepared uh, for this N- NFT uh, phenomenon. Just whenever it would rear its head, um, it was kind of like as you said, Steve. Um, I mean, if I might paraphrase and feel free to call me out, um, but but I think both you and Megan share this um, perspective of Christie's has been there to capture institutional trends wherever they may rear its head. Um, And it seems that such an abstract perspective, whether we're talking about um, uh, photographs or whether we're talking about, I believe, uh, Elizabeth Taylor's uh, jewels were mentioned. Um, And now we, we have the concept of NFTs. And it seems as almost as if the only thing that was really required um, for legitimacy, true true legitimacy in the art world, as I understand it, um, at least at this point in time, was the conception, a, a real tangible um, form of having an original. And now it seems that the blockchain is able to provide that concept because you now have the receipt. You, you, you can have something, you can be as... Um, hilariously removed from it as not having the original, not having the copyright, but so long as you have that essential receipt. Um, Christie's is there to really um, take on that new definition of an original, um, to be there and just see it as a new chapter, new um, institutional trend, if I'm really understanding you. Well, I... 
I would agree to a point and also say that the blockchain non-fungible token technology simply underscores the originality of work that was already being created and causes it to be profitable in a way that it couldn't have been before. Um, but Sally, I have to say, I'm in, I'm so curious as to how you see this playing out in the museum sphere and as a head of a collection yourself, if you are inclined to collect or kind of if there's a learning curve there or if the idea of value remains Absolutely. steady across collecting categories. I, I mean, how are you seeing that play out in, in your day-to-day -day work? I think it's very exciting. We are still in the nascent stages of figuring out how NFTs really contribute to everyday collecting in art. And I believe that we're really not even harnessing the true power of how NFTs can help authenticate um, art. And especially, I think it'll really have an impact on determining and safeguarding the provenance of any artwork. What's been happening, it's, it's fascinating. I, my main expertise is in old masters. And so one thinks, well, how is it we in any way um, assign an NFT to a physical object? I think that's what we're all trying to really figure out. It's easy in the digital world. People, it was a pure digital um, creation. But what do you do when you have a physical work of art clearly and by an artist who is no longer with us? How, how, do, how does an NFT work with that? So what's fascinating is that some people are figuring out how to tie that in to, in essence, the catalog raisonné of an artist where one would be able to, on the blockchain, um, it's very exciting, I think, on the blockchain, calculate and authenticate the entire provenance, as you said, for the whole world. Megan, you, you know, telling us all that this is something the whole world can always keep track of so that it's very transparent, the provenance. And I know that for Steve, especially in all his years of doing auctions, provenance is always such a sticking point, isn't it? That, that helps yep. purely to authenticate the art. So imagine if you had this blockchain of provenance where essentially the catalog raisonné of Monet um, is always present and one could access it. Think of what that could do really to, um, I think, enhancing the, the authenticity of all old masters and making collectors feel more uh, confident that they are collecting mm -hmm. the original. You know, think of mm -hmm. all the debates that surround these great old masters. And, you know, of course, we'll never really know unless we resurrected Vermeer or Leonardo da Vinci. But if one can, as I said, kind of collect and harness this notion of authenticity on the blockchain, I think that's very valuable. Megan and Sally, I'm always, I always go back to this New Yorker cartoon that came out about a year ago that showed two <laughs> elegant women sitting in an empty white room. And one says to the other, I just love your NFT collection. You know, so for the traditional collector who enjoys the three-dimensional object and the, the tactile qualities associated with seeing a 3D object in real time, um, how do you see this phenomenon fitting into that somewhat perhaps is an old-fashioned, an old-fashioned desire to own an object. It's so funny you mentioned that, Steve, because when we were at the very, very nascent stages of offering Beeple, and just as a bit of background, that kind of uh, blossomed at the end of 2020, and it wasn't announced on our website. The sale didn't open until like the end of February of 2021, and then the sale closed mid-March of 2021. So that was kind of the timeline there. So these ideas kind of were percolating internally with some people, but it obviously took you know some advocacy to get more and more people on board. Nevertheless, when we were talking about all of this, one of the questions was, okay, if we're going to sell a purely digital object, can we ask the artist to like sign something that we can send to the buyer? <laughs> ah. And people was like, I mean, if that's what you want, sure. But I don't think that the buyer of this is going to want that. I don't think they're going to care. And there've been some really interesting experiments wherein digital artists have paired a physical component with the digital component. But I think it, 
it raises a lot of questions. How do we ensure that those two things stay together? How do we ensure that the owner of the NFT is definitely going to pass along the physical object? And is it important to keep them together or is value centered in the NFT or is the value centered in the physical or is it in the union of the two? And I think every project is going to be different. And Mm -hmm. you can kind of think about this in the same way you think about conceptual art, right? Some, Some works are truly just a certificate. And the material, the the actual physical manifestation of the work is totally at the owner's uh, discretion. For instance, I'm thinking of an artist named Darren Bader, and, and there's a work called Painting Slash Sculpture. And his true instructions are, you can take any painting and you can take any sculpture. And as, if you put them together, it is my work. <laughs> huh? <laughs> what? But, but that's conceptual art. And so now we're seeing yeah. these same questions of ownership and value and I don't know, symbiotic relationships play out in the union of physical and digital. And we're only asking these questions because it has become such a global phenomenon. Uh, And, you know, I, I think where we see major collecting happening and major values being posted uh, that mm-hmm. that's what that's what causes the conversation that's what that's what spurs the discussion on a global level Megan I'm wondering when you said about how to keep them together could one mm-hmm. let's say one sells the object and could one not insert a little chip on the actual physical object that then they always are in harmony so wherever that goes then they could stay together the owner I don't know. I wonder if that's been thought of. Yeah. No, it, it certainly has. There's some there's some really interesting technology, progressive technology for sure. But this idea of weaving in like the token code, the token ID, yes. identification yes. number mm-hmm. to a physical object and, and trying to strengthen that tenuous connection. Um, there, there's other instances where the physical is... I'm thinking of an artist named Tamika Thiel who does artificial reality and virtual reality. And to mm. own the token means that you you essentially own the virtual reality experience. So you it's sort of physical because it exists in physical space mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. experience it, but it's entirely digital because there's no other way to access it and there's no, no other way to own it. So I think there's there's a lot of instances where artists are playing with this idea of the connection between physical and digital. And one of those ways, yes, is weaving the NFT code into the physical object. And Megan, could we talk about the the second people that came up, which was sort of a hybrid of what you are describing, right? So 5,000 days gets, was the breakthrough, but last season we also had a a sort of a combination NFT and physical object. Could you? Oh, do tell. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this is called human (laughs) one. And it was offered in our November 21st century evening sale, which is kind of this reconceptualized sale platform that looks at truly emerging artists. So the estimates are usually pretty pretty low. They're not like the $15 million estimates you're seeing in your typical evening sale, Monet, Van Gogh, Picasso, those artists. So we have the opportunity to elevate some emerging artists, contemporary artists. And so people just felt apropos in that case. The particular work was a revolving box structure and the sides of the box were LED screens and the LED screens displayed a walking astronaut, we'll call him. He had a helmet on or he, it may have been a woman, unclear, but kind of a space suit, like aluminum foil color and like a big helmet on. And the landscape through which this figure was walking, constantly walking, just always moving, was changing. The landscape was changing. Sometimes it was a desert. Sometimes it was a grassy field. Sometimes it was an island. And all at the same time, the physical structure is rotating on an axis. Mm-hmm. And so you you have, and, and, and the technology behind this is the imagery in showing on the LED screens was pulling from the digital asset that Beeple created as a digital file to show up on the LED screens. Whoever purchased that, and I believe it's public information that it ended up going to somewhere in Europe, 
that digital asset, that video will speak with or understand the time zone where that buyer lives and will change the imagery showing on the LED screens accordingly, according to the weather, according to the political scenario, according to the time. But the physical object spins, constantly spins, never stops spinning. And the, the astronaut figure inside walks, constantly walks, never stops walking. So, I mean, you can talk for hours about this thing. It's I can't amazing. Not, it was a tour de force of like practice to put that together. I mean, it was incredible. He, he had a massive studio. Getting that thing to Christie's was a feat in and of itself. But the technology, the sophistication with which it communicates with the outside world and understands its environment, all of it, I think, was the pinnacle of what we're talking about. So, Steve, I'm so glad you you entered that into the conversation. And I think you can also speak to this, that this got physical art collectors immediately interested. The 5,000 days, the JPEG, people were like, well, what the heck? What is that even worth? But all of a sudden, as soon as there's a physical manifestation of something that mm-hmm. is still very digitally centric, mm-hmm. people were, I get it. I get it and I want it. Yeah. Steve, I don't know, I don't know if you heard that from any of your from any of your collectors or the people with whom you're in touch, but that was certainly the response here at Rockefeller Center. I, I was gonna say actually, um to, just to just to, you know, transition into, you know, I, I think you make an excellent point there, Megan. I mean just has there been any real pushback from the establishment? Has there been any sort of political element um, that's more just firmly rooted uh, in tradition? I mean, from what I've been hearing, um, Christie's has demonstrated um, incredible um, openness and flexibility from what I can tell in terms of um, the emergence of NFTs. And um, and uh, Dr. Metzler, you yourself uh, seem to, um, you, you know, as I understand, you're coming from a very more a traditional background in that sense uh, from Renaissance and medieval and Baroque art. Um, but the very least, the potential um, that NFTs have, even for those who are long gone, the preservation um, of those artworks um, just opens up so many possibilities. But has there been any real pushback from the political element in all of this, the establishment, just anything of that sort, any sort of just resistance, really? Sally, you start because I've got I've got plenty to say, too. I, I'm sure you do, um, Steve. I think it's still just too early to tell. As with any new trend or technology, there are always naysayers. But I'm sure mm-hmm. there were people, you know, who ha- wanted nothing to do with email when it first came out. And as we know, mm-hmm. there are a few people who still don't use email and they are very much left out in the cold. So I think it's there are there are people waiting they're suspicious and we won't really know in in another 10 we'll have to wait 10 years to find out was this a fad or is this mm-hmm. with us here to stay and i think we will adopt it and refine it for the art world even the, the big key is connecting it to the physical object that's mm. the main issue which we could you know go on much longer um, and later i'd like to mention how museums what they're doing with the nft but steve let's let's hear mm-hmm. the the naysayers and politics well, it, it was so interesting. Was it was just in the fall, Megan? You were kind enough to yeah. engage a friend named Sarah Odenkirk, who is an attorney who is becoming increasingly prominent in this area, mm. and she is she works with digital artists. She she has you know pioneered the the contracts that safeguard their their work product. So we held, you know, we're putting our first tentative baby steps into in-person events again. And we invited about 40 people to the the Christie's Gallery in downtown Chicago in our Hancock building. And so we had a wonderful panel discussion and um, we had an amazing array of collectors from the Chicago region. So we had our, our clients that I would say they ranged from 40 to, I know one was 87 and she was in the front row. And then we also had, uh, a, you know, a representatives of the institutional world. We had a former chief curator at the major contemporary museum in Chicago. And so it was an, an incredible um, discussion. I thought the curator, Megan, was, you know, a naysayer in the sense, Sally, that he was, um, he thought a lot of the quality was lacking in some of these digital artists as well. He would, he would, he, I think the comment was a lot of these people wouldn't survive a first year crit. Do you remember that? A comment that sort of stuck with me. Um, that, what struck me, Peter, was the, I think curiosity, you know, our collectors are, are mm-hmm. voracious 
you know, in wanting to learn and, and their curiosity. Some of them are getting their heads around it. Um, some of the establishment curators clearly had problems with quality, which is one of those great determinants of value that I always look at. But mm -hmm. um, Megan, what did you think of them? I did that sort of play out, you know, in a surprising way to you and Sarah? Or what did you think? Oh, it was fascinating. So Sarah and I and Steve sat at the front and it was a very intimate setting because of COVID and, and everything. But it, it was almost as if it, it was supposed to be, I think, me and Sarah talking, but people just chimed in and shouted out questions. And it was so <laughs> engaging. And I think that gets at the heart of people are inclined to naysay but the whole thing is too interesting and weird to totally write it off. Like there's still an interest to get into the conversation and, and to, to make your own take on it known. Mm -hmm. And also in the audience were digital artists. So there were people ah. like hundred percent advocates in that room. And also hundred percent, I will never own an NFT slash <laughs> even understand what the blockchain is in that room, but everyone was engaged in the same conversation. And so in the same way, we're looking to unite the physical object with the digital manifestation. I think we're also starting to unite the traditional physical collectors with the digital community. And that I think is going mm -hmm. to prove very meaningful when it comes to how these worlds continue to interact in the market sector. Um, the digital community is all about this word authenticity. They like mm -hmm. people who are committed to the technology and who believe in what it means and what it brings and what it can do. And I think that's what's difficult for people to wrap their heads around who aren't mm -hmm. in that community already. It can feel a bit uh impenetrable it can feel unfamiliar and the mm -hmm. you know points of entry are slim to none so herein i think we also see a bit of christie's role is in building that bridge in making this whole thing less scary in making it more intelligible and connecting it to to concepts already familiar to collectors of traditional art so in answer to your question, Peter, and to kind of sum up what we all have said is that, yes, as with any new thing, exactly like Sally said, with any new trend, you're going to come up against derision. You're going to come up against doubt. But the fact that it's happening means that it's going to continue to happen and the fact and, and means that people are going to keep paying attention to it. We just have yet to see how it will cement itself within the canon. And that only cement, comes with time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was particularly struck um, that it was mentioned how just the sheer curiosity of all these collectors uh, has been proven to be such a driving force. I mean, I, I think often it's stereotyped that many people who are engaged in the world of high art uh, tend to be very traditional or so set in particular ways. But from what I'm really understanding, it's much more of a positive drive to see, you know, what is to wh whether or not there may be an overarching sentiment of whether or not this is just a trend or we don't know, or this is here to say, regardless of what that is, a lot of what naysayers you do come across are overpowered by the sheer curiosity of most collectors is what I seem to really mm. uh, be taking. And maybe the potential too, right? It's the right. Potential, potential that I think we're all waiting. Many collectors are also waiting. Yes, this trend, you know what trends can mean. If you get in on the trend early, you then can make an enormous amount of money as well. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. It's just like oh, yeah. discovering who's the next great artist. That's what we all yeah. want to do. So in one way, the whole NFT craze is like everything in history when we think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, there And there was a time when we were also suspicious, I think Steve could talk about this, when suddenly auctions were online, when you could buy art online. <laughs> Even that's new. Right. That wasn't something that was done. Yep. But it's, you know, it is also about money and assigning value. And my question, I wanted to go back to what Megan had mentioned, when it seems impenetrable, couldn't you also say that it's also very inclusive because almost anyone now can own a little part of art? Are, is, are mm -hmm. NFTs not made the Robin Hood of collecting as well? <laughs> anyone, so right, anyone Sally. can have a part. You're, you're so right. Um, two things. You mentioned Robin Hood, and I would say that I would attribute at least some of the fervor behind the Beeple sale to the early January 2021 
Robin Hood GameStop situation wherein it was, you know, the the people taking back control and, and being able to exert some sort of influence from a very grassroots level. And that's really what this digital community is, is supporting artists from the ground up as opposed to the institution down. Um, and I think second to that, it's very important for collectors who are interested in getting involved in the community to know what they're getting into, like have an understanding of the technology, know the lingo, know the places where people are talking about this Twitter discord. I mean, they're not platforms that, you know, traditional art collectors where they are, but if they demonstrate going there and an, an interest, it is inclusive. It is come see what we're about. We want to share this. And we, Christie's has been the bene beneficiary of that sort of inclusivity as opposed to, you know, the big man coming in and, and taking over the trade. No, it's been a symbiotic relationship. We are so, so grateful to the collectors we know, the artists we know who have given us insight into this, again, this ecosystem that's existed long before we got involved. Absolutely. And you've brought it into the limelight as well. One can say that many people probably had never heard or paid heed to an NFT until the large people mm -hmm. sale. So mind you, then suddenly everyone said, I better explore this. And oh my goodness, I can have a little tiny piece of an NFT. Right. I can get involved right. in collecting art. And that's what's the most exciting part. All of us dedicated to the art world. I always take joy when I see a museum crowded, even though it means that maybe it's a little uncomfortable for me. I'm always really <laughs> happy about it because I think this is so great. People are here embracing and having a relationship with art. And that's what an mm -hmm. NFT does as well, I think, is that it strengthens mm -hmm. and deepens yep. a relationship with art for, the, for anyone that wants it. Mm-hmm. Megan, can you touch on how um, artist resale can be impacted and how the artists ah. themselves now yeah. can be compensated oh, yes. more fairly? Very good. Right? I mean, you know, traditionally uh, in, in our world, it, uh, you know, a resale of art, you know, bye-bye, right? Artists often don't mm -hmm. uh, profit from later transactions. But it, mm -hmm. will the NFT first, will that change? Steve, you're playing hardball. Come on. Um, <laughs> so... I would first say that, yes, when work is sold on the secondary market, the artist, unless it's sold in the United Kingdom or France, where there are strictures around artist resale royalty on certain works of certain age, otherwise, other than that, you're right. The, the original creator is not seeing a cut of the profit directly, but they are seeing an indirect kind of uplift in the general market because a strong price at auction necessarily means higher primary prices, right? Mm. In the world of NFTs, digital art, this concept is solidified and direct, like you said, Steve, artists now have the ability to directly profit from every time their work is traded or resold. However, there are drawbacks to that. There are limitations. So what this means on a very practical level, I'm a digital artist. I have an asset. I'm ready to go mint it, creating the NFT, staking that claim mm -hmm. on the blockchain, right? And when I mint it, I have the option to build in a resale, a percentage of the sale that will come back oh. to me, that will automatically kick back into my digital wallet every time that token moves from one digital wallet to the next. Now, this resale is only applicable to the platform where I've minted. There currently is no route to interoperability when it comes to the resale right. So hmm. while it is encouraging, at this point, I would say it's more symbolic than it is uh, career changing for artists. I wouldn't say that artists, digital artists are relying on this as a stable source of income because works can be traded in a variety of different ways. And there are many loopholes around the artist resale royalty, right? Right. So all of that to say it is pointing one way, but it's not refined to the point where it has become the letter and the law. Um, but it's, it's hopeful, you know, for, for creators who put their work out there, there is, there is recourse now. And I would also say that there is greater connection between the creators and the collectors, 
Whereas in the art world and speaking from the auction house, secondary market, we, we hold our buyers and sellers at arm's length. It's, it's anonymous on both sides, unless the seller right. chooses to be named in which we'll publish their name with the property title. But beyond that, I mean, we're not meant to know. Buyers aren't meant to know the artist. Mm -hmm. If they have the chance to meet the artist, it's usually an anomaly as opposed to a frequency. So this new kind of relationship between collector, creator, and, and being very directly involved as a collector is something that's unique to this space um, and something that's really exciting for collectors. Because Sally, it's like you said, like the fine art world can be impenetrable to people who aren't already in it. And so to see this ecosystem wherein it's encouraged to communicate and collaborate and creators actually make work with their collectors in mind. I, I mean, it's, it's so, hmm. the feedback cycle is tight. The feedback loop is happening on, on a regular basis. One really good example of this is an artist named Micah Johnson, who does a series of a uh, little little kid who is also dressed as an astronaut. I don't know why I keep talking about that, but his his whole <laughs> idea is like you know people of color who feel like they're closed to opportunities that they can go forth and achieve whatever they want to achieve. And so he's created this character who's who's become central to his oof. And in every work, the the collector has the option to like take the astronaut's helmet off and like see the kid. But otherwise oh it just remains it just remains like a kid figure and but it's totally up to the collector and like the artist is okay with that. The artist is like, yeah, I've programmed it this way, but it's totally up to them wow. if they want to engage with the story or how they want to engage with the story. And so his his quote, and I love this, he goes, buying is the new liking that to demonstrate support and to show advocacy and to get involved in a movement, it means financial investment and financial means crypto. So all of these worlds are so closely intertwined, the relationship between the collector and the creator, the, the community around the artwork itself and the investment in cryptocurrency, it's, it's so much more tight knit than it may seem to the outside observer. Uh, and and to you know be in there even just a little bit is a privilege that we take seriously here at Christie's. Uh, so I think um, at this juncture, uh, just so into um, transition a bit more to uh, the closing comments, if you will. Um, if uh, perhaps a bit of an amateurish question, if you'll allow me to say so, but um, I would just like to get um, your, your all input from all three of you. Um, as to just your own personal definition, as we have been you know, discussing um, the real value of art, um, especially in light of the advent of NFTs, you know, how do you think, um, what would, I guess what I'm trying to say is, what do you think your own personal definition of, of value would be as it relates to art, especially as we're seeing a, a very, at least from where I'm sitting, a very a curious mix of both genuine enthusiasm for what may or may not be a new trend, as well as the the carrying on, if you will, of just traditional attitudes towards um, art and just the general enthusiasm people have that, uh, surprisingly for me at least, is carrying on towards NFTs. What, what would you all say is, you know, your personal definition of value? Um, it really start, you know, when you're going into your particular station, your job, where, where is that value truly going to manifest? <laughs> Bit of a roundabout way of saying it all. Mm -hmm. Ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, well, you since I'm here? old masters, I'll, I'll I'll start because we go way back. I, of course, one could uh, one could have a discourse for many hours about value. Value for art really, indeed, is self-selective. It, in so many mm. ways, it is what mm. the individual and what the market will determine. A work of mm. art um, goes up for sale for $450 million. And for that person that paid that, we, we all know I'm referring to, mm -hmm. <laughs> the audience may not, but I'm referring to one of the, um, the greatest masterpieces by Leonardo da Vinci, the Salvatore Mundi, and Christie sold that for a record-breaking $450 million. So the owner who purchased that for him 
it was worth $450 million. Now, someone who didn't enter the auction, it wasn't. So in so many ways, value really is self-selective. And it is about collecting and embracing what you determine as valuable to you. Um, so, you know, obviously one looks at skill, one looks at ingenuity and this Mika, is it Mika Johnson you mentioned, um, Megan? Yeah, yeah. Just sounded Micah incredible. Johnson. Micah, Micah. That's incredibly ingenious. And I've always valued mm-hmm. um, invention and ingenuity. Um, that's, that's really what our history is all about. Who was first to do it? Mm-hmm. We still think of mm-hmm. Giotto di Bondone, one of the great early Renaissance <laughs> painters. He is an innovator. Right. He was, he was inventive. Yes. Thank you. So it is. And it, Duccio, it, didn't Duccio come up with perspective, Sally? You know, I mean, it's all yes. art was contemporary and there were, there mm-hmm. were, you know, thresholds of development and innovation 800 years ago. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Exactly. So it is hard to pinpoint, but I I would say self-selective and also invention and ingenuity and creativity is how I would place a value on art. Sally, like you said, we we could have this discourse for hours on end. (laughs) I would say something along the same lines that value is arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the fact that the United States has chosen to denote the value of $1 on a piece of paper that you can shake around and drop on the street. Why did we decide that that's what is worth a dollar? And why did we decide that that's how a dollar is represented? And and it's the same way. It's this collective agreement that we're all going to say, yep, that's what it's worth. And when it comes to art, the collective may be a bit smaller Because Sally, like you said, the amount of people who are able to participate in an auction of that scale is incredibly limited. But now that someone has indicated they're willing to pay $450 million for the lost Leonardo, does that mean that that's what it's worth across the board? Does that mean that the next lost Leonardo that's to come up, which there's probably not one, but who's to say? You never know. (laughs) Like, what is, is that that value is going to be based on the precedent of Absolutely. the last one. Mm-hmm. So so it's self-selective in the way that it's an individual choosing to go after something or or to to spend or to invest in a certain way. But in the same way, it becomes public. It becomes collective because mm-hmm. that is now the precedent setter. That is now what peop- what one person has has said, others now agree. So it's, it's tough. It's really tough to center. It's tough to find truth with a capital T in, when it comes to value because yeah. it's subjective to begin with. But then that, as soon as everyone agrees, it becomes objective. But that completely defies the notion of objectivity. <laughs> so, as I said, we could talk in circles. We could talk in circles. We really could. But I think, Sally, you get to, you're starting to get to truth, capital T, the objective value when you think about ingenuity and practice and technique and creativity and like true, you know, hallmarks of good art. And and that is kind of what Christie's is looking for when it comes to what digital art we promote. It's that sophistication. It's something that is pushing the envelope as opposed to something that's playing into a milieu that already exists. Um, and it's something that will stand the test of time. I think value is determined over a long period of time. And whether that be monetary value or historic value, I mean, all of that takes years of agreement, collective agreement to, to come to. And it can change. Because people are fickle, and therefore, what people agree on is fickle as well. So, sorry, Steve, take it away. I'm absolutely, yeah, Steve. Yeah, so fun. Um, just for the audience, Peter, I'd love to point out. You know, Sally has her grounding and scholarship in old masters, but she oversees a much more encyclopedic collection from you know old master examples to. Um, the club has been buying uh, 20th and 21st century art. So you've got had mm-hmm. to look at a lot of things. Megan has the luxury of being more focused in, in you know, post-war <laughs> contemporary. And myself, as the, as the Midwest generalist, you know, regional representative, I take every phone call from Omaha to Cleveland and from the Twin Cities <laughs> down through Kentucky. 
So <laughs> 65 different categories. And I'm going to give the more academic response. Um, the art market should probably best be um, understood as a series of markets traveling on parallel tracks. So um, the traditional determinants of value are what we lay out in, in more traditional categories. For example, fashion, provenance, condition, quality, all of those things. Um, and they can change category by category. A couple of quick examples. Um, the English furniture buyer wants something to look slick and shiny and restored. But the American furniture buyer wants it to be in the original as found attic condition mm -hmm. that when it turned up in an attic in Portsmouth, mm -hmm. New Hampshire. And the, the table or chair or desk can look exactly alike to the untrained eye, but there are two very different determinants of value. So an American piece that's been slicked up and refinished is going nowhere. In England, they want it new. Mm -hmm. um, and then back to... What is fashion yeah. and provenance? Um, I'll, I'll go back to the Elizabeth Taylor example um, in 2011. She was lucky enough not only to be a, an iconic celebrity name of her era, probably dimming a little slightly now, now that she's been dead for over 10 years, but at the time, an iconic celebrity who was lucky enough to have boyfriends and husbands that bought her the very best quality. <laughs> so we have to factor in is there what is the celebrity plus factor the ownership of an object mm -hmm. plus the quality mm -hmm. the inherent quality of the object so even a hundred years from now when elizabeth taylor's star has dimmed quite a bit the quality of the objects that pass through her hands will still be mm -hmm. van cleef and bulgari and bucciolati mm -hmm. all the names that our clients will respond to so value is uh, to me it's a fascinating analysis and mm -hmm. it's case mm -hmm. by case and um you know, for example, Jackie O, her fake pearls sold for a fortune in 1994, <laughs> but another couple sales later, they just became a set of fake pearls and the, the value wow. decreased markedly mm -hmm. when they returned to the market. Really? Those thing, I think, will hold their value. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Oh, so, yeah. It's, it's a topic. Curious. I like to, it's a yeah, good analogy, very curious. So we're back to, yeah, you're back to inherent value when the star, the luster dims. Mm -hmm. hmm. Inherent value. Is that possible? Can something be valuable inherently? Well, come talk to me in 20 years and I might be able to provide a good answer for you. Yes. We all need to meet up in three to five years. I would welcome the opportunity mm -hmm. to gather again and really assess where we've gone, the landscape and how we've navigated where our NFTs three to five years from now. Peter, if you'd like to invite us all, we, we might who knows where we'll be, but I think it would be very interesting. Yeah. It's such a nascent, nascent technology and trend right now. We oh, really don't there, know. There will, there will most. And can I toss most... out a question before we, we, we adjourn? Um, you hear about, I, I worry about the potential dilution of the NFTs when you hear about mm -hmm. politicians are now minting them to suit their own fundraising purposes, which yes. seems to me is yeah. a very murky, muddy you know, dilution of what we've been talking about today. Does anyone right. else have concerns about too much product out there for too many reasons? And, you know, what do you guys think? Well, I, I was just going to chime in real quickly. And I think for me, just the, the primary concern is more of an environmental one. When you really right. think about the computing power um, and fossil fuels required um, to produce NFTs, um, I, I, I confess that I cannot speak to the particular political element of this. Um, mm -hmm. But just knowing that the environmental impact that these um, non-fungible tokens can have is... Um, Particularly disconcerting, to say the least, knowing that um, that they can at times equal mm -hmm. and exceed the um, power output or input, rather, if you will, of entire cities, which is um, yeah. that's an uh, issue that's been brought up in mm -hmm. in literature and mm -hmm. discourse. Precisely um, that, that you know these are all things we have to reckon with, and but isn't it just like everything when Steve, when you said now that you know maybe they're using nfts for reasons that we all don't fundamentally feel are ethical it's it's again with any technology you know twitter is wonderful when announcing a special cause um let's say mm -hmm. a, a movement of independence but twitter can also be very damaging as well and it, mm -hmm. it's always kind of mitigating the mm -hmm. virtue and vice of any new technology is what we're going to have to reckon with i think in the future mm -hmm. Social media is going to play a huge role, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. Well, this has really been like fun. I've so much enjoyed it. What? what? Doc, 
Well Dr. Said. Metzler, Dr. Metzler, Steve, Megan, thank you so, so much for being here today. It has been nothing short of an honor. Likewise. And you, We've enjoyed it, too. Thank yeah, you. we have. That's a pleasure. And you can rest assured that – thank you so much. And you can rest assured uh, there will most assuredly be a follow-up episode in uh, five years. <laughs> I'll be sure – we'll be sure to make it happen. <laughs> And lady, and uh, actually, just while we've got the last um, one or two minutes, if I might just give you a real rapid fire one, what is each of your what is your respective favorite piece of art ever? If you had to say, real quick, I'll go first. That's- right now, at this moment, my favorite piece is Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine, which is from the mm. Czartoryski uh, Museum in Krakow, Poland. Yes. And once traveled to Milwaukee, where I saw her. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> she was jet lagged, though, right? <laughs> she was jet. Yeah, she was a little tired. She... <laughs> she wasn't prepared for the cold. Uh, yeah. I would say David David Hammond's hood. Uh, it's the cutoff sweatshirt hood that's pinned to the wall, um, and I think it says everything from how we see people who are different from us to what it means to conceptualize a work of art, to the gallery meeting the real world. I, it says everything. It's incredible. Wow. Interesting. Wow. For me, favorite art is something that really delivers like a, a, a gut punch of emotion. And it happened to me really only twice. And once was when I, I was lucky enough to have a private tour of the Sistine Chapel and they threw the doors open and you walked in just after the Japanese had restored it. And it was the most incredible experience. And the second, I'm going to go, I'm going to join Sally with Leonardo. We were uh, joining a, a throng of tourists who were bustling down a hallway heading for the Mona Lisa. And I looked to the left and in an empty gallery was the just as beautiful, just as magnificent Leonardo of the Virgin sitting in the lap of her mother. Yes. Uh, I got to yes. see that by the Virgin and St. Anne. And it was just another mm-hmm. a, a sucker punch of emotion. Oh, yeah. Exquisite. So I, I, mm-hmm. Yeah. The old yeah, masters yeah. for me really yeah. knock it out of the park sometimes. I don't know if I'm allowed um, to, as the layman here, I don't know if I should be throwing <laughs> in my two cents, but um I, like Steve, am currently uh, uh, stuck between two. So the very first one that comes to mind for me, at least, is uh, The School at Athens oh, by uh, Raphael mm-hmm. uh, cool. in the Sistine Chapel. Yep. And it's funny, actually, because I remember several years ago uh, taking a vacation uh, to Rome and Florence. I remember we were visiting uh, St. Peter's Basilica for the day. And I actually didn't know that the painting uh, was situated uh, within the complex. All I knew was... Um, when they were given, you were given the uh, ticket to get in, and that you had to swipe uh, through security. Um, just as a little ad, they had like a little, uh, the little image of Plato and Aristotle on there, and I'm like, wait, that's here? Where is it? <laughs> yeah. I don't care about the Sistine Chapel. Take me to Raphael's masterwork. Right. And you're a um, philosophy so major, that, so that's why you write. Right. Oh yes, so so so, uh, so I can assure you that um, that little vestibule, for lack of the proper term, where that fresco is located, is consecrated ground. Uh, apart from the fact that it's in a Christian facility, if you will. Um, <laughs> but don't get me started. And then the other one I'll just mention real quickly. I don't know if anyone has ever seen this before, but it's a painting called "Military Maneuvers" by Richard Thomas Moynan. Uh, he was an Irish artist. Um, and it's currently at the National Gallery in Ireland. And oh. I remember seeing that way, way back when I was um, still in my high school years. And um, it's an image of uh, like a group of young town boys, like, you know, like 10, uh, 12, uh, 13 years old, you know, just marching through as if to imitate a military march. And there's a little soldier. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a little soldier, but there's a um, an actual soldier on the side of the road just looking at them. And then a, 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 on the far left of the painting, and then on the far right, you have this um, like 12-year-old kid uh, with his head cocked down like a so. And just looking at looking at him as if to say, you know, I can be just as dignified as you. And I just thought, for me at least, um, as the layperson here, that really spoke to I think the hidden desire for dignity and honor that kids can have at times. So that's just me. <laughs> but once again, Dr. Metzler, Steve, Megan, thank you so much for being here, and thank you all who who are listening. And I will see you once again when I emerge from the tower. Have a great day. 
Thank you.